This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Christian Dittmeyer, a former financial analyst. Christian was pulled into the crypto world after the wild and unexpected success of one of his side projects. Today, Christian is the co-founder of Evaluate, a platform for trading and swapping NFTs like Top Shot trading cards and Doodles wearables. In this episode, he talks about his insights and experience into the world of NFTs. We discuss different types of users, the value of swapping, and the decision of choosing to build on the Flow blockchain over Ethereum. Please enjoy my conversation with Christian Dittmeyer. The first time I heard your name, Christian, was when Matt Walsh called me to ask me if I knew what Evaluate was. And I laughed at him because I was on the Evaluate website looking at my Top Shot portfolio. Top Shot was digital basketball trading cards, and it was the beginning of the NFT boom. So why don't you take me back to maybe the founding story of where Evaluate came from? So I met my two co-founders, Cody and Alex, playing Xbox Live, I think around 2007, 2008. Both of them were software engineers, super talented. Alex showed me NBA Top Shot, which were, like you said, these digital collectibles for NBA teams. And both of us were big fans. We were involved in the daily fantasy world, albeit not very successfully, and wanted to dig in. So we started designing a portfolio app and a research app so you could look up these different NFTs and hopefully invest in them. That's our story. Stumbling on NBA Top Shot, we thought it was somewhat ridiculous. You own these digital items and you can't hold them. You can't redeem them for anything. But I think after spending more time in it, really experiencing the pack opening sequence, we really grew to like the product. We released an app as a side project and saw a lot of traction early on. Was your intention that the three of you, after meeting on Xbox Live, wanted to start a company? Or was this more of a, you saw a problem and you needed to just go solve it? Initially, the intent was for us to just invest in these assets and make money. We released the React app shortly after, I think in February, and had hundreds of thousands of people using it within weeks. There was no intent to start a company or to really build it out much further than that, but we had a lot of inbound requests for funding. I think the space in general was starting to really take off and we saw other companies raising money and had with inbound requests, we're able to network and eventually stumble on that, which is how I met you, and raise money for it. But I think it's a unique scenario because we're accidental founders in a sense. And we've had a long journey in terms of starting and thick of it and having a ton of usage early on and then having to go through and learn how to build a product and learn how to control your own destiny versus building on top of probably one of the most explosive consumer applications ever in terms of how quickly it grew. Taking us back to that time is interesting for people because... NFTs have been around since 2017, but they had a spike and then they faded. And then 20 to 21 became this huge boom where they're the front page of websites. And I think what I'm interested in is when I think about a startup getting product market fit, 
it feels like usually there's a lot of tripping and falling and then finally you get something and then maybe you have that moment of the hockey stick. But for you all, it seemed to happen like a tsunami hit everybody at once. So what was that like to suddenly see your website being one of the top viewed websites in the world? Definitely. Yeah. It was a double-edged sword in a sense. Obviously, success we had early on positioned us to raise money, to go and hire people that have heard of our site and were into NFTs. I think the difficult part of having that much success early on, especially when you're riding the wind of a certain infrastructure like blockchain and what Dapper's doing at Flow, and then the success of NBA Top Shot is it's difficult to know what you're doing well and what you're not doing well because you're having a ton of success just because of the market conditions. But we're super grateful for the experience. We're obviously have gone and, and built a lot since then. It's been two years since we started the company. The hardest challenge early on was just building a product and things that people like and not knowing if you were doing well or if the underlying products were. How did you feel about some of the decisions around being a top shot company versus being an NFT analytic engine versus being something bigger? Early on, I think one thing that we underestimated and one thing we really learned is that it's hard to be everything for everybody. And somebody who collects NBA top shot moments was a lot different than somebody who collected CryptoPunks or things on Ethereum. So one challenge for us was trying to expand outside of NBA top shot and trying to market to a new audience while maintaining the usage that we had from flow collectors. And ultimately down the line, we recentered our focus on flow. It was definitely challenging learning how to expand, how to market to different people. And then ultimately, I think we were one of the first portfolio apps for NFTs. We played a big part in that on flow, at least the perception on NFTs is these investment assets and people refreshing their portfolio over and over again and seeing how it goes on. I think over time, we wanted to move towards doing things that are a little bit more social, a little bit more engaging beyond the number go up for NFT collector. I think that's been exciting for us to just finding new ways for people to interact with other collectors around NFTs versus being a portfolio app, which does very well when prices are soaring and people are seeing their account value go up. It's much more difficult to build a portfolio app when the market is stagnant or receding. So that's been a big challenge for us. And we've really found a good place and have a lot of conviction in what Dapper Labs is building with Flow. But I obviously want to see new collections come to Flow and find new cases there. You mentioned how you couldn't build everything for everyone. But I remember having spoken to you along this way about how there's a lot of money flowing onto Ethereum. Those seem to be the bigger traders, bigger accounts. We've seen stuff with marketplaces pop up. Then there were analytic engines that were popping up. I think at first you were trying to analyze the portfolio for people. So these are new assets that people wanted easy information and see what stuff was worth. How did you guys think about comparing with other competitors at the time were doing similar things, people that wanted to get into the trading side of it? It's difficult when you're building an NFT app because a lot of the uses, particularly right now during a bear market, is centered around the top 500,000 collectors. So when you're building an application, particularly around advanced analytics or portfolio, in order to have the most success, you really have to build something for the pro trader. But for us, especially raising money at decent valuation, you want to be able to build a product that millions or hundreds of millions of people could be using within a few years. And we don't have a lot of conviction that the masses are going to look like the top blur traders in terms of staring at maybe a Bloomberg terminal type of equivalent in trading constantly. And it's not to say that it's not a good model or a good company, but that wasn't what we were probably best suited to build. We were more interested in these mainstream consumer products. And I think being on Flow in particular, which is sort of a blockchain built for these mass consumer applications, it's a better fit for us to focus on that. But it is difficult. It's on that building something for everybody. 
people who have maybe 10, 15 NFTs about things they care about, they behave a lot differently and want different features than somebody who's buying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of digital assets. You mentioned Blur. What's your take on their place in the market? Obviously, there's probably people better suited to speak on it, but I do think that they solve a real need. They have a great product beyond just the token farming angle of it. I think their interface is very different from OpenSea. And it's, it's almost confusing to see people compare the two and, and act as if they're going head to head. I think the reason you're seeing Blur have a lot of success right now is because people who are most active in NFTs and are trading NFTs tend to be the people who are doing it more sophisticated and and have more capital. But if that were to change, if there was NFT collections to come along, like if you imagine maybe a Pokemon or something similar to come along, I think a tool like OpenSea and hopefully ours would be more suited for those collectors. But yeah, overall, I've always been impressed with the interface itself. And I think there will be a place for the more advanced tools. And I think probably a place for the more mainstream consumer geared applications. But for right now, I think in terms of if you're looking at marketplace spend, the amount of royalties and fees, that's probably leaning more towards the advanced trader. I find Blur fascinating. And I think we'll have them on in the coming episodes. But I just think the whole idea of it's interesting because we saw it with looks. People thought OpenSea was in a spot. And it's so fascinating. Before we hopped on, you mentioned how Two years ago at conferences, people spoke and talked like they were experts in something. But all of this is just so new. And yet it feels like, I don't know what it is about crypto years acting as if one year feels like 20. But you get these experiences where like OpenSea was so dominant, it didn't really seem like anyone could knock them off their perch. And then Blur shows up with a completely different economic structure and suddenly takes all of the volume. And I just think from your perspective of being a builder in the space that directly interacts with them, there has to be a challenging place to build when stuff's moving so rapidly. Yeah, definitely. The pace is difficult. It's also difficult that you're building on open data. We saw this with Genie very early on, Gem becoming a big player, Blur getting involved where as a builder, you have to one, have top of line product, but two, somebody having a small edge, whether it's slightly lower fees, a better interface, maybe lower transaction costs, better rewards or token that more people are excited about become very real and you can go from having 95% market share to a few percent very quickly. There's always a bigger fish when it comes to these open data applications. And there's a lot of concerns about defensibility in Web3. And I think it's more difficult to build that defensible positioning in this space versus others. That's not to say that all these products aren't going to have success and find their own spot in the market. But it definitely, just over the last couple of months, the top player has seen 80% plus of the transaction volume. How do you think about defensibility in Web3? When data is open, unlike a private database that a corporation owns, gives you some level of access to it, if everyone can see all the transactions, how do you build a defensible business? Our current viewpoint is that one, bundling is important. We're taking a bet. People who go to our site to check their flow portfolio will also want to be able to meet other collectors and swap NFTs with them. And we'll want to have the feature set around marketplace aggregation. And Blur does this really well because on top of being the best marketplace aggregator on ETH right now, they're also probably the best way to track your portfolio in real time on Ethereum. Right now, we're building for that bundled experience. And then obviously, when you're building on Flow or Solana, you're able to build relationships with the companies building the blockchain. I think you can build defensibility around building maybe outside of Ethereum where you have more competition more people building products. If you can serve an underserved community on different blockchain. I think that's a good strategy. But it's a question that's still getting answered in the market. It's difficult to find examples of people who've magic eaten, for instance, have 
started in one blockchain and then really taken market share in another. I think these communities are different. Solana collectors tend to collect primarily on Solana and talk with Solana collectors on Twitter. It's difficult to make the jump to other things. And I think we're still early enough to where you want to market to and spend all of your resources really solving the needs of one community versus trying to be everything for everybody. But we're still learning about how to build a defensible company. It's still early on for us. So I don't have all the answers. It's a great response. It's something I think about just in general with Web3 of when people want to build open permissionless things. There's also a question that there has to be an economic incentive for a bunch of people to do work. Now, some people have made enough money in prior lives or through other means that they can just work out of the kindness of their heart because they believe in something and that's nice. But that's not how most of the world works. So I do think about this when the economics are placed in these things, when we have tokens of some sort, it does become tricky of where the money flows to. Thinking about Ethereum versus Flow versus other blockchains, getting to that decision has to be a big one because I think it's easier for people to say, I'm going to go with what's winning or what's the biggest. It's a much bolder decision to say, I'm going to go with what I think is going to be bigger or a need that I can serve differently. How did you come to that decision? Yeah, I think... Part of it has to do with the application that you're building. So for us, when we move towards building a peer-to-peer live swapping NFT platform, we noticed that one is very difficult to establish that safety and trust level that you need for people to connect their wallets in Ethereum. So for us, Flow was awesome from a standpoint of people with Dapper wallets felt very confident trying new applications because there isn't these horror stories of even sophisticated or technical people losing tens of millions of dollars in one transaction. So the trust thing was big for us, but also just wanting to build a company for millions of people. There definitely will be solutions built around the Ethereum universe that will likely be useful for that. But we see a lot of the things that Ethereum is working towards already in place on Flow. If you look at account abstraction, anything around the ease of onboarding, the safety climate on Dapper Wallet and Flow in general, I think is a little bit ahead. And obviously having NBA Top Shot, NFL Day, these NFT collections that have interest from hundreds of thousands or millions of people at one point, sort of was a good use case in terms of what we want to build for in three or four years when we're hopeful that most everybody will own digital assets and we'll be doing things with them other than hoping for a return on their investment. What part of building on the Flow blockchain were inherent challenges from prior experience of trying to expand more broadly onto Ethereum? One, Flow's done a lot in recent months. They held developer hackathon. They've done a lot around documentation, but early on, there wasn't much documentation on how to build on Flow. There was a sort of an intensive process in terms of collecting the data itself and dealing with the sporking periods where they would change nodes to the current one. But for us, that was the defensible position because we were building systems that were hard to replicate, that weren't well documented, were frankly challenging. The scale of Flow, especially early on, and still is, was millions of transactions very high throughput, a lot of mainstream user applications. So anything from opening packs to burning things, sending gifts, all had these on-chain transactions that we were able to go and index. But it was much less documented and there was much less developer tools. If you think of the Alchemy, like Reservoir, these tools didn't exist. So if you were a developer building on Flow, it wasn't as easy to interact with just an API and build cool applications. You had to go through and actually index the data from these different nodes. I think that's such a funny point that we're taking decentralized data and then centralizing it to use it again. Isn't there some sort of irony in that? Oh, honestly, when I was on your website, that's what I was doing. I was trying to build my own trading algorithm and top shot, and I needed a data set to train on to do what I wanted to do to figure out prices. But I was struggling 
what's the easiest, fastest way to get me the data to spend the least amount of money? It was publicly available, but I feel like there's some irony there in everyone taking decentralized data and putting it in a centralized location. Yeah, definitely. There was plenty of successful Web3 applications early on that would proxy API calls to other websites or infinitely <laughs> scrape them for their data. Now, Ethereum in particular, I think the biggest challenge was the transactional data was often like on-chain and accessible for everybody, but listings because of the transaction expenses related to users wanting to go and list without paying a gas fee. A lot of the listings just lived on OpenSea and lived behind a rate-limited API. So it was very difficult for applications at scale to ingest all of that data on Ethereum. And that's one thing we did enjoy about Flow and building on Flow is the fact that listings exist on-chain. They're often standardized in these marketplace contracts that are open liquidity pools. So any marketplace can go and list to their storefront contracts. On the backend side, in the early days, there was a lot of web scraping going to other people's websites. And then on top of that, when we were a portfolio tool and we showed people their transactions, we get people asking us about their taxes and whatnot. We had no intention of building tax software or anything similar to that. It is interesting to see how people use the data, even in the early days when it was very difficult to do anything on chain. One thing you've always pushed me on that I find interesting is the notion of the social community side of it. I've always just been more of a capitalist approaching new asset classes, but you always love the part of people coming together, whether it was Topshop, people talk about basketball, their passion for collecting. How have the different communities changed for you as the product has built? Has the Evaluate customer stayed or have you grown the business in new groups? I think the type of user that's still around in many of these early NFT collections are there because one, they have an interest in the NFT collection or the IP itself. And two, because they've developed relationships in these communities and leaving those collections or leaving Web3 or NFTs behind to them means leaving their friends behind. And I think that there is part of that that adds value to these NFTs. And it's something that we're excited about with trading. I think Doodle's two wearables was a big use case that just came along for us where not only do you have people talking about wearables on Twitter, but you're able to go on our app, meet other collectors and talk with them one-on-one -on -one and trade assets with them for zero fees. We think that makes the community stronger. And usually NFTs that have stronger communities do well for it financially. And it's been exciting for us to offer a way to go and show off your collection. Like you're in this RuneScape style interface trader where you can show people your NFTs, you can offer them for other ones, you can suggest NFTs you're after. It really is a new experience around having that one-on-one -on -one conversation that you don't have on Discord or Twitter where you're shouting into the void and hoping that people engage with you or respond with you. So that's what gets us excited about that. And we want to bring a lot of those social one-on-one -on -one conversations into the marketplace dynamic as well, because that's always been a big pain point around buying NFTs. Is a lot of times it's hard to contact the person who owns them. It's hard to show them who you are and, and what you're willing to offer. Anything that gives people more options in terms of getting involved in the collections that they're excited about is exciting no less. But definitely a different pace than staring at a Bloomberg-style interface and, and trying to trade versus having face-to-face -face conversations, close to face-to-face -to as you can get online. To me, the way I think about it is in the early days of trading, it felt like traditional assets. Blur is teaching people about high-frequency trading and front-running and back-running trades and teaching people how people might trade equities and bringing that to NFTs. But I think what you guys have done, I want to get into swapping, reminds me much more of my childhood of a bunch of kids sitting around and trying to swap baseball cards and come up with a trade that works for everyone that you felt like, okay, if I give you these three and you give me those two, plus that action figure, we've got a deal. And that was a lot more fun and satisfying than just saying you bought 98 punks and you made 22 basis points of ETH or something. 
how does swapping work? Because I think in the Ethereum world, people are used to hearing about swaps and then people losing extremely large sums of money because they've been duped or socially engineered into transacting on something, which is a concern that people are obviously working on. But how does swapping work for Evaluate? Yeah. So on Evaluate, you can go and connect your Dapper wallet or another Flow wallet. And then you have two options. You can offer to trade with another online user that you know and send them a request. Or you can enter this chat relay slash OmegaStat experience where we'll pair you with a similar collector who's online so that you can chat, negotiate, and trade with them. I think why it works really well on Flow or it didn't as well on Ethereum is that Flow assets and NFTs and popular Flow collections are often a couple of dollars, as low as a single dollar. And it's much easier to trade $10 worth of stuff for $11 worth of stuff versus trading $10,000 ETH NFTs for $11,000 ETH NFTs. So that low price point and then that approach where these collectors aren't looking at it purely from a financial lens, they're engaging with other collectors, they're talking about the MBA, they're trading stuff for other low value items. I think that works pretty well. We've seen other use cases. Some people use it to lend each other expensive stuff, trading over collateral and then trading it back. But what gets us excited is more so, I think, around just engaging with the collections, meeting other collectors and then swapping, replicating that childhood experience of trading Pokemon cards or baseball cards, I think is what the magic of the product is versus other style of collecting. And it works well on Flow and it would probably work well on Polygon and Solana because one, you have cheap assets and then two, you have little to no transaction fees. On Flow, Dapper actually subsidizes the Dapper wallet transaction fees. So you don't have to pay anything, which enable that lower friction trading versus on ETH when you have to pay anywhere from a few to a couple hundred dollars to sign a transaction. I'm curious of those transactions, and I know you're a data nut, how many of them are people swapping with people they know versus trading or swapping with strangers? The majority of them are match made on Discord or others. We, I think for like Doodles wearables and others, we do see randomly matched people trade, but those trades tend to be a lot smaller. They're more serendipity driven. So a lot of times people are trading just to trade. I think it's a fun way. If you're listening and you have an NFT collection, you can think of NFTs that you've bought that you enjoy, but have been sitting in your account for a while. I have a crypto that I bought that I really liked, but I would be totally open to trading it for somebody else's and having a new thing versus it just sitting there forever in my account. So I think people enjoy, especially if you have floor NFTs, being able to switch them for other ones just for the fun of it versus having to go and sell it and then pay a fee on that and then buy another one, paying a fee on the purchase as well. So it gives people a fun way to swap out the things that they have and then meet other people, expand their NFT collection beyond sort of just marketplace activity. One of the funny behaviors about NFTs, if people own as many, they might not realize is, and you see this with swapping and trading almost of any price. And this is why the doodles wearables were so fascinating was to your point, some people have stuff and they love to swap it for some new stuff and do a fresh thing, but everyone always overvalues the stuff they own. And I think part of it is the biases that they overestimate value, but it is this connection people have that the thing that they own, they usually generally like more than the things that they want to swap for at times. I think it just shows this interesting early connection to digital items that I hadn't seen before. This isn't like a Fortnite skin where you've played with it and it's this thing. These are things people bought, but then seem to care about far more than you could ever have imagined. Yeah, the endowment effect, I think is what it's called, is definitely real. I think there's a lot of interesting behavior that we've seen. Some people were trading green socks for green socks that were not differentiated in any way other than an arbitrary serial number, and we're calling it washing socks. But I think for people, it feels like a digital handshake. 
the interface makes it feel like you both sign and agree and then it loads a progress bar and completes. So people were doing it just to do it. And then the other thing that encourages that behavior is that Flow NFTs, I think Doodles Wearables have done this, all the major sports IPs have done this, do these challenges where some people are going to go and go after these certain NFTs and other people are just going to decide that they don't want to. And they're able to trade what they have that are part of that challenge requirement for NFTs that maybe they're more interested in general. It encourages people to switch around their collection. And it's easier to do with a swap tool than it is to do with anything else. It also gives you the option to swap it back without paying a fee. It's interesting. We thought about this from the UX design. Do we want to show people what the value is? Or is that going to encourage people never to trade because they know, oh, this is $40 and the other person is only giving me $39. So I don't want to trade. And people definitely do value their NFTs more. But the good news with Flow is that a lot of these people have hundreds or thousands of NFTs and aren't as attached to it versus in the Ethereum world where I know that I have certain ones that maybe I wouldn't want to trade for another one because to me, it's worth more. It has that emotional connection related to it. I like the idea of the challenges, the stuff you see a top shot with, whether it's if you can get the entire Celtics team from a certain series, then maybe you get a chance to go to a playoff game. I think the connection of the digital world offering physical world opportunities, the swapping idea, especially there's challenges becomes a really powerful thing in a way that too, that I think that brands would enjoy those fans coming together. I think this is a theme. I'd be curious to get your take on that. The brands have talked about of, just offering loyalty for points, that's fine, but you don't have any connection to your United Airlines miles. Nobody cares. You have numbers, maybe the status, because they gave you a little platinum badge. But if you've collected the entire Celtics series from Top Shot, and that gives you a one in 200 chance to sit courtside to a playoff game, that's really cool. That's something that you're connecting with your team and a brand in a far different way than you ever could before. I think that's a great point. I know that Adapter, and I think Roham specifically has talked about wanting to build the currency of fandom. Why does it matter that you own these digital assets? And I think doing things like team leaderboards and player leaderboards, which you can go to and point and say, hey, I'm actually a fan of this person. You've collected all of these things, brings people joy in a way that it's hard to do for other NFT collections. And I think the other thing that relates back to swapping for us is that people acquire these assets oftentimes through packs where so they're not specifically buying the things that they want a lot of the times they have a lot of assets that they wouldn't have purchased that maybe other people are interested in or in the pfp world they do it through these random reveals i can think of plenty of nfts that i've had revealed that i'm like oh i don't particularly want this board ape smoking a cigarette i'd gladly trade that for somebody's board ape that has a different trait that they don't like so I think that's advantageous for the swapping world is the fact that many of the assets that you own, maybe a majority of them, weren't ones that you specifically picked out and purchased on the marketplace. When you think about what has to go right as you currently think about how you're building the system, what are the things you're most focused on? You mentioned a couple of times that there'll be millions and hundreds of millions of NFTs and there'll be low cost. So maybe more people will want to use and interchange them. But what are some of the things that you think have to be right to make that work? I think one thing that we think about a lot that's encouraging in building this space is that it doesn't take a lot to go right to be able to build successful companies. So if you have one NFT application that goes and scales to tens of millions or hundreds of millions of users, as a ecosystem tool, you can add value to a lot of collectors very quickly. 
And it sounds like a lot in Web3 terms, tens of millions or hundreds of millions. But outside of that, if you look at mobile apps, like if you look at Bitmoji, they're able to scale to, I think, around 40 million within months of releasing their application. And part of that is because obviously there's work to be done in Web3 UX in terms of onboarding. And I think that's what I'm the most excited about with Flow is the abstraction side and the walletless onboarding, making it easier for people to buy NFTs for the first time that checkout as a guest experience that I feel like everybody clicks at least the first one or two times they buy something. But I think if you're building a tool on Flow or Solana or Polygon, that's one of the most exciting things is that a collection could come along that appeals to hundreds of millions or tens of millions of consumers and you're immediately marketable to them and integrated with them versus having to specifically build for these applications. And we saw that with Doodles where we didn't know that Doodles 2 was coming to flow for sure. But on day one, we were already there with the use case because we had built a Web3 application on top of flow. I think people underestimate in terms of for the mainstream to come this, this, and this happen. I think in reality, we just have to have the UX experience that millions of people can use. And then to just have one of those IPs come along, whether it's a new one or an existing one, if Pokemon or something similar were to come and build on top of one of these blockchains, it can bring millions of people into it. And I think NBA Top Shot was an early example of that, where it had IP that appealed to people and people learned the Web3 ecosystem and how to use a wallet and how to use marketplace tools because they cared about the NBA, not because they wanted to get involved in NFTs. I think very few people I've heard who got involved in the space did it because they wanted to learn about crypto. They did it because they wanted to learn how to buy NBA collectibles or these cool drawings that people were selling for thousands of dollars. That's what stands out the most is that it really just takes one big collection to come along for you to have a successful company and have a lot of users. It's such a good point of the IP or the experience of what would bring people to the collectible space. And I think the part that bothers me about Top Shot gets to my next question about how you handle this Benjamin Button situation, that the spike was so great. I do not have an analog for an industry experiencing such a rapid growth like this on this scale and the size of money in the sense that the experience changed how people felt. Where with digital cards, for example, a lot of the collectors of the generation that had them were used to what happened in what was called the wax era of baseball cards, where suddenly they started overproducing. They had a supply demand imbalance. But it does make me think, had we never gone through that huge spike and we just grew slowly, who knows? But it feels like it might be in a better space because when something feels such a high demand spike and shock, I'm not sure how you navigate it. So I guess my question to you now is, now that you've gone through this spike and decline, what is it like today to build? How does it feel in relation to where you're going and how you're positioned? Hyperscaling, especially early on, it is very difficult because one, you don't have the feedback in terms of what you're doing right or how to make it better because you're growing such a huge rate just from being a part of the market. For a lot of these NFT collections in particular, I think it's difficult to manage how do we, one, retain value to the people who bought early, and then two, create millions of new NFTs for all of these new users who are getting involved. And I think balancing that, a lot of these companies employ people with economist backgrounds to try to manage that. And it's very difficult because there's users who are there because they are extremely involved and want to have an edge in terms of completing challenges and getting rewarded for it. But the company is also thinking about how do I sell NFTs to every NBA fan or every UFC fan? And it's difficult to have both of those different types of collectors win in a market that you're creating. And I think there's also not a lot of 
clarity in terms of how involved should Dapper had to go in and create NBA Top Shot from scratch and had to build the first use case on Flow. And I think a lot of people later on were like, oh, why are you the ones who are issuing these assets and controlling the marketplaces in terms of you're actually building them? But they had to because there wasn't, it's not like other people are going to come and build without that, that use case being established. I think it's difficult for any company, even outside of Web3, to have a lot of success early on, to hire a ton of people right from the beginning before you have your core team just having those repetitions and growing over time. But I think we're more excited now in terms of having learned those lessons and then the market growing at a pace that's sustainable. And then I think a lot of the people who are getting involved in using our site now stick around. I think around over 50% of people who trade on our site come back and trade again, around 20% trade over 10 times. And it's nice because they're doing it because they like to get involved, not because every week their investment portfolio is up three or four X. I think there's a little bit more of a stickiness with these users who are getting involved now versus when everybody, their cousin were, were investing, even if they didn't care about the underlying assets to make money. Yeah, it definitely feels like you're getting a better signal from the market now than you were when the market was going crazy. Yeah, for sure. I remember interviewing Axie at the peak of the market. And I think the thing that struck me was how hard it is, whether it's gaming or collectibles, that if there's any version of a token, you're overseeing an economy. It's a very hard thing to balance. And I think what people don't appreciate is that without intervention, we will get to economic theory, the market should be more volatile. There should be more creation and destruction. Prices should go up. You would have huge demand spikes and huge crashes. People in general don't like that. The volatility is too much for them. There is something about, maybe I'll retract my last statement, that it is an interesting experiment to see what works and what doesn't work. And I think I commend you guys for trying to find a way to navigate it and stay with it and keep working on it as you're facing all these volatile changes outside of your control. Every company involved in this space has vandalized the decision to release a token or not. It's difficult, even just releasing an NFT collection, just the idea of people are going to buy this and expect in perpetuity value to be driven to them is difficult. I think there's different approaches you can take with NFTs. It's a very flexible standard where you could release entities that the idea is that the art or the collectible itself is valuable. But we've always been very cautious of doing a token or NFTs just because of that expectation and that volatility. I think it's great when you release a token and the token increases in price and people feel like you've rewarded them. It's much harder when people lose money related to a token that that's tied to your brand. And I think it's a good thing that companies like us have the option to release a token, but it's hard to find very many good examples of it being done. And it definitely takes a lot of research and design decisions that I think this early on are difficult. I think it also has to do with what are you trying to do? As people have asked me from startups that were well-funded to very powerful brands, how to handle it, I usually start with what are you trying to solve? What tokens allow is a really unique incentive mechanism that hadn't existed before. So Blur, just to example, if you want to induce trading or bid side liquidity, the price that someone's willing to pay, if you pay for it, you will get more. It sounds overly simplistic. Now, they've done a excellent job and built a very powerful tool, but at the end of the day, it's an incentive. And incentive mechanisms are one of the most wonderful and powerful things to play with. However, they're also a dangerous thing to play with that if people become used to or expect them, they could have this reverse effect where people aren't happy with it if they don't get what they want. And so I think we've seen people do it well. I think we've seen people do it poorly. And I use this term all the time. I'm just excited to watch the experimentation because I think that those new incentive systems is going to be the key to unlocking behavior. I think people talk a lot about the UI UX. I definitely hear that. 
But I think to your point, when people came to Top Shot, they were basketball fans that thought this was a pretty cool thing. And so the UI was a lot easier to use. But when the IP is so good, people will do a lot to figure out how to do it. Yeah, I think for us in terms of challenges we've seen related to incentivization is more so how do you get people who use your app and love it to tell other people? And a lot of Web2 apps, it's extremely easy because you have their contact list and you can nudge them to send requests. And so for us, I think that's one of the things we think about a lot is how do we get these people who enjoy the app, who come back and trade multiple times, how do we get them to tell other people? And I think Blur did a good job of requiring or nudging you to share on Twitter that you'd receive this reward, but it's very difficult to scale a Web3 app to a ton of users early on when you don't have that mechanism to get people to tell their friends about it. And it's a little bit easier to do. People do that naturally when they're making a ton of money. So for Topshop, most people heard about Topshop because somebody they knew made money on it. It's more difficult to do if people aren't making money hand over fist because there's really no reason for them to tell people that they enjoy this app. I feel like I've come across a ton of Web3 apps and I'm like, wow, this is actually a good application. I like using this, but nobody, it's not part of the Twitter meta or the zeitgeist of Web3 and fitting in people's standard stack of applications. And I think that's the challenge that we have to figure out. And maybe tokens are the mechanism to do that, right? To reward people for going and sharing it. But it's always difficult to set it up in a way where it's not gamed or <laughs> farmed to some extent. I think that's the most difficult challenge we've had is just how do you get people to share the good experience they have with your application? That's an interesting question. And also, I think this is where it becomes challenging. Any incentive system will be gamed. I can almost guarantee that because humans are smart and they find a way to game it, they're going to. So that's going to happen. But I think a different question would be is, are those the people you want? So this is how you get a bubble boom bust is that when a bunch of people tell their friends that they made three times their money, over a month, the people that are coming are not necessarily the loyal MBA fans that are going to sit around and build a company with you over decades to get to these milestones. You're going to attract a lot of tourists, like people we call them today. What I think is interesting about the blow off top is that the people that are left, the people that are on Evaluate Swapping right now, really care about the product. And so I think that's another dangerous part of the incentives is you can incentivize noise or people coming. But how do you handle it when you're trying to develop in your state, a community of people that want to be around each other, that want to grow? That's such a challenging tension where people want the clubhouse where they trade with just their friends, but the business also wants to have the expo center where everyone's walking around and trading and swapping items with one another. It's a hard line to tell in terms of, do we build for the people who are here now or do we build for X number of people that we want to be here? And most of the time, I think the answer is a little bit of both, but it's difficult. And I think a lot of apps like us are facing that challenge in terms of how do we scale this and do we just build what people are asking for or do we build what we think people will need? Because you essentially have to take multiple bets when you build a Web3 application. You have to bet on an infrastructure or bet on people wanting to use multiple blockchains and wallets. Usually, I think it's smartest to build for certain collections first. So for us, that was NBA Top Shot. A lot of applications that you've seen started by going to X number of communities and trying to build for them. So you have to take a lot of bets and then you have to balance how do I build for the people who are still here and offer interesting features for them and retain them? But how do I go and build something that is going to appeal to more people, even if the general tooling isn't there now for mainstream adoption? Well, that's a perfect segue to my final question, which is, What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? I think over the next six months, we really want to make trading with your friends and swapping NFTs much easier. Right now, there's this online requirement that both people have to be online. So we want to make it easier to facilitate that maybe asynchronously. And then I think long-term, we want to see NFT collections come along that 
appeal to tons of people. I think that's what really excites us about the Doodles brand and then the vision of building for the masses is we want to have an application that people can go and engage in, even if they're not into Web3 or even if they're not following that. I'm super excited for something to come along like a Bitmoji where people can identify with the assets and we want to be the place they go where they can buy them across marketplaces, but also meet people and trade with them. And I think if we can be a platform where people can have these one-on-one conversations, meet people who share interests with them, and then get that excitement related to trading in the park like with baseball cards or Pokemon cards, for us, that's exciting. And obviously, we want to do it for millions of people. So that's what we're hoping for over the next six years. Awesome, Christian. Thank you so much for spending the time today. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 